seat. If you turn over to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in chapter 6, verse 10. And then, as always, we'll be in various other places, but we're going to do most of our work in Ephesians 6. You can at least keep your hand there. Uh, Let me go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we echo the, the theme of that song that we would stay far from evil. And Lord, I pray that as we, uh, as we look into your word, as we look into the things that you would tell us today, God, I pray that you would clear our minds of anything that doesn't need to be there. Lord, I pray that we would come to you with both a clear and open mind. And Lord, I pray that as we take a look back through a little bit of history and as we see some of the things that have been prophesied, Lord, that we would uh, take heed to their words and Lord, that we would not let history repeat itself. God, help us to grow closer, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, fill us and use us in a mighty way. Lord, speak through me, please, despite my faults. And Lord, allow your people to to feast on your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. Just by way of quick review, we're almost done with the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're getting there. Uh, we started out fast, and now we're, we're slowing up a little bit because some of these, these verses that we go to for application uh, are pretty in-depth, and they require us to look at a, at a handful of things pertaining to our life. And so the, the section today is going to be uh, actually about fighting. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, we're supposed to stand fast. And the way that we're able to do all that stuff, the reason that Paul gives us for being able to do what we're commanded to do today is in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Paul tells you all of these great things about Christ. I hope that maybe during some of your quiet time, during some some spare time at work, during your lunch break, you're going back into the beginning of the book of Ephesians for encouragement. I hope that you're reading about the great love that Christ has for you. He says it's an inexpressible love that you can't comprehend except that he allow you to uh, open your hearts and understand it. Uh, the first part of the book of Ephesians explains the, the redemption that you have in Christ, your forgiveness of sins. The first part of Ephesians is going to remind you that you were dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sin, but Christ, being rich in mercy, brought us back to life. And so there's all of these great things that we have in the early part of Ephesians, but now... At the end of Ephesians, Paul says, because of all of those things, now I want you to live that way. And Paul's telling us what we're supposed to do to live according to all the great things that he told us before. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so Paul tells you all of these things that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, uh, you're supposed to be a, a well-rounded church. You're supposed to be mature believers in Christ. You're supposed to treat your wife a certain way. Wives, you're supposed to treat your husbands a certain way. Children, you're supposed to act a certain way. Everybody has their role within the church. And here he says, we as a group need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Over and over and over again, Paul is going to tell us that we as believers need to be strong, right? He says, I don't want you to be tossed around by every deceitful scheme of the devil, but I want you to be strong. I want you to take a stand. And we as a church, we talked about last week that one of the ways that we do that is that dads are the 
the strength in which we are to stand on Christ. And so, well, that didn't exactly come out exactly right. But dad are supposed to be the pillars that help us to take a stand with Christ. And so dads are obviously working in the power of the Holy Spirit. But dads are the ones leading the charge, standing firm in the faith. And they're raising their children in such a way. And they're bringing their wives along with them in such a way that we as believers are able to stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you were to go over to Second Timothy, and you can turn or you can just listen, but Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, says that you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so you and I are to be strong in Christ. We're to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And we're supposed to be, make sure I say it the right way, we're to be strong in the strength of his might. And so the question on the table is... We as Christians, how do we as God's people, how do we be strong in God's strength? How do we be strong in his grace? Good question, right? Because you're not just supposed to be strong in and of yourself. And we talked when we were talking about dads that just because a man can hunt or fish, just because a man can win a boxing tournament, just because a man can win a wrestling match doesn't necessarily mean that he's strong in the Lord. And we as a church need to elevate not just men who are what the world considers men's men, but we need to, to push forward and hold up men who will hold fast to God's word and be strong in Christ, not just as Men or as male figures in the world. You following me? All right, good. And so, how do you be strong in the Lord? You come to church on Wednesday nights because that's what we're talking about, right? So I'm going to skip it a little. All right, I'm going to I'm going to plead the fifth here, and I'm going to give you a little plug for Wednesday nights. Wednesday nights, I introduced the study on the Holy Spirit that we're going to do, and I said if you were to take these scriptures and you were to read them, you would read that your life is supposed to be full of power. If you read the early Christians' lives, all of their lives have one thing in common, and that's they go about life with a sense of urgency and a sense of boldness, and they seem to know exactly where they're going, and they seem to say the right things at the right times, and God seems to be all over everything that they're doing, and there seems to be a power that, that, that infiltrates a believer's life when they come to Christ. And I said on Wednesday night... If you were here and I were to give a straw poll and said, how many of you guys feel like you're living your life with any sort of power or victory? How many of you would raise your hands and say yes? And the truth is that most of us would say, you know, truth be told, I feel like my life is lacking that power that's supposed to come from the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights is talking about the Holy Spirit's role in our life and how we live a life of power through the Spirit. Right? So. I'll see all you guys Wednesday night. We meet in this section at 7 o'clock. And so if you, by you not coming, I'll, I'll understand you saying, nope, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I'm full of wisdom and power. Don't need to know anything more about it. I got it. Right? That's what I'll get, get from it. Boy, you guys are tough this morning again. Loosen up a little. Nobody's, we're not at a funeral. We're not at a memorial service. This is Christ rose from the dead. And we're here applying this to, his, to our life. Right? Here we go. Then he says this. After you're supposed to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, you're to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, next week, we're going to talk all about what it means to put on the full armor of God. The rest of chapter six involves putting on the helmet of truth or salvation, picking up your sword and all of these other things that that are talking about putting on the full armor of God. So that's next week. Then he says, so I've got you on the hook for both Wednesday and Sunday now. 
because you've got to. Now you put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, this is what I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about, the schemes of the devil. And there's a couple different things that I'm going to read to you that I want you to understand. The devil is an adversary that you probably neither understand nor know very much about. Many people in our culture have this idea of the devil is this guy in a pitchfork who sits on your shoulder or he's in a red suit, tights, has a pitchfork, and he doesn't look very intimidating, and he's the devil. Or we have this idea of all of these, I hate these commercials that are coming on TV and they, they talking about all these horror movies and you're watching a show with your kids and then all of a sudden there's this creepy guy that I have, I never want to see this guy ever. And, and there he is and he's this wildly ugly, demonically possessed looking guy who's just scary and filthy and you think, oh, that's got to be what the devil's like. And the truth is that neither one of those things are true. And one of the devil's schemes is that you never figure out exactly who he is or how he operates. That's how he can remain uh, unknown. One of the tricks that America would have is that we train people to operate in other countries incognito so that nobody knows who they are or what they're about. So that they can go about their business secretively. The devil wants to remain secretive. Following me? Give me a little head nod. All right. Good deal. Now, the other thing... That he wants to do is that he wants to, like I said, operate secretively, not let you know who he is, but who he is, is not the pictures that you have of him. Who he is, is actually an angel. He's actually an angel of light who's fallen and now he's a, a bad angel, so to speak. And so he's been, he's been kicked out of heaven. He used to be uh, in heaven worshiping God like all the other angels, and now he's not. And so the scriptures tell us that Satan goes around disguised as an angel of light. And the truth is, is that if you, if you actually saw Satan for who he really is, you would be tempted to follow him. Because he is beautiful, and that's one of the things that he uses to lure people away. Now, the things that he does are incredibly evil, but he does it in a way that entices people to come in his direction. And what he's really trying to do is to fill up hell with innumerable souls. And so hell, before we start talking about the schemes of the devil, was never created for you. It was never created for me. It was created for Satan and his angels. And a common misconception is that Satan has control over hell and he doesn't. He has absolutely no power over hell. He has no power over heaven. He is going to be a recipient in hell, just like anyone is who doesn't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so his mission is to lure as many people with him into eternal torment as he can. And he does it in incredibly provocative and in incredibly scheming ways to get as many people to come as possible. So, your job is to put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. When I was growing up, I used to cut grass with my dad. He used to have a lawn care business, and every time when we would eat lunch, we would listen to Take a Stab at it on the radio. Paul Harvey. Any of you guys Paul Harvey fans? Loved Paul Harvey. Incredible guy. Born around 1918, give or take. Uh, well before my time, but this is what Paul Harvey said. And listen to when he said it. He said this in 1964. He writes this. Now, there's two versions of this, what I'm going to read. There's one version that he wrote in 1964. There's another version, which I also have, that's been modified, and it was put into a newspaper in 1996. So if this 
this resounds with you, and if you've seen it online, you may have seen the version that was in 1996. But I want you to hear what he says 60 years ago. He says, if I were the devil and I wish that I sounded like Paul Harvey. If I sounded like Paul Harvey, this room would be packed. But I'll give you a good Paul Harvey impersonation at the end. If I were the devil, Paul Harvey says, I would gain control of the most powerful nation in the world. I would delude their minds into thinking that they had come from man's effort instead of God's blessing. I would promote an attitude of loving things and using people instead of the other way around. I would dupe entire states into relying on gambling for their state revenue. You should be thinking lottery. You should be thinking other things. I would convince people that character is not an issue when it comes to leadership. I would make it legal to take the life of unborn babies. I would make it socially acceptable to take one's own life and invent machines to make it convenient. I would cheapen human life as much as possible so that the life of animals are valued more than human beings. I would take God out of the schools where even the mention of his name was grounds for a lawsuit. I would come up with drugs that sedate the mind and target the young, and I would get sports heroes to advertise them. I would get control of the media so that every night I could pollute the mind of every family for my agenda. I would attack the family, the backbone of any nation. I would make divorce acceptable and easy, even fashionable. If the family crumbles, so does the nation. I would compel people to express their most depraved fantasies on canvas and movie screens, and I would call it art. I would convince the world that people are born homosexuals and that their lifestyles should be accepted and marveled. I would convince the people that right and wrong are determined by a few who call themselves authorities and refer to their agenda as politically correct. I would persuade people that the church is irrelevant and out of date and the Bible is for the naive. I would dull the minds of Christians. Listen to this. I would dull the minds of Christians and make them believe that prayer is not important and that faithfulness and obedience are optional. I guess I would leave things pretty much the way they are. Paul Harvey. Good day. So what did he just say? In 1965, a guy that we all looked up to said, if I was the devil, this is what I would do. And every single thing that he mentioned has happened. Now, he is by no means a a prophet of God, but what he said is incredibly prophetic. We live in a nation that values trees and owls more than they do in turtles, since we live near the uh, Oregon Inlet, and we value turtles more than we value human life. We've killed 20, excuse me, about 2.5 million babies, and we've saved endless turtles. We've got hawks and eagles all in our city. And week after week, people flock to Planned Parenthood to kill their children. The schemes of the devil are incredible. I talked to a youth group about eight months ago. Excuse me. I talked to a college group of of about 15 intelligent, absolutely intelligent college students that will go on to do absolutely incredible things. And I said, how many of you guys have ever heard of Planned Parenthood? And none of them raised their hand. I said, if you wanted to plan your family and you looked through the, and you looked through the phone book, would you go to an organization called Planned Parenthood? And they were like, yeah, it sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to do. And I said, do you realize that Planned Parenthood is what the organization is called that has killed millions of our babies? And they said, no, I never would have imagined that. See, the devil is incredibly scheming and we're not killing our children. We're planning 
our families. The devil is more crafty and wise than you will ever give him credit for. And if you go to battle against him alone, you will lose every single time because you are not near as strong as you think you are. The forces of evil and the principalities that are around us that you don't even see will absolutely consume you. And we as a church are asleep. We watch things on TV. What else did he say? Now, I'm going to get back to the scriptures, but I want you to just remember what he said. He said, I would come up with drugs that sedate the mind and target the young. Do you know that the prescription drug problem in this country is out of control? I took a class from an incredible counselor, Ph.D. in all sorts of things, and we were talking about the purpose of counseling. Which, if you ever go to counseling, which is not a bad thing at all. Counseling is actually a good thing. And just a plug for counseling, most people go to counseling when it's too late. Most people need to pursue counseling before they normally do. Most people go into marriage counseling having already made up their mind that they want to leave. But he said that in counseling, the purpose is not to make someone feel better. He said, we have drugs for that. He said, and this was a man who could prescribe any sort of drug that, that, that was on the market. He said that I can have anyone come into my office and I can make them feel through drugs any way that they want to feel. So if they're sad, I can make them happy. If they're happy and they don't want to be so happy, I can make them sad. If they want to sleep more, I can give them pills to help them sleep. If they want to stay awake, I can give them pills to help them stay awake. Anything that you wanted your life to look like, he said, I can give you a pill for that. And that is not the purpose of counseling. And so he says, if he was Satan, that he would get, he would make drugs, sedate the mind and target the young. Then he says he'd get control of the media. He also said that he would compel people to express their most depraved fantasies on canvas and movie screens and call it art. And so he says that if he was Satan, what he would do is he would infiltrate Hollywood. Now, listen to me. The people in Hollywood are way better at things than I am. They can take the most boring story. They can church it up. They can make it fancy. And they can put good actors and actresses who are beautiful behind it. And they can sell you anything that they want to sell you. And then what they also can do is they can put all sorts of murder mysteries on TV. And you can see things on TV that people ought not to ever see. There are shows that you watch that show things that a normal human being should go their whole life and never, ever witness. And we call it entertainment. And you know the problem with it is that we're such an entertained generation. We're such entertained people that when somebody stands up and talks about this, this is boring. Because you can go watch Hollywood make a mess of sin and do it in a profound manner. And that's entertainment. But this is dull and boring. And the reality is, is this has the power to change your life. Hollywood has the power to reel you into hell as an agent of Satan. And that's the God honest truth. But we fill our minds with so much junk that this is boring. And you have to come up with fancy ways to get God's people to show up in church and pray. If I were to take a straw poll and ask you how many of you guys have prayed for your neighbor's salvation, and you say, well, all my neighbors are saved. If I were to ask you how much time you spent praying for your friends or family's salvation this last week, I bet if you compiled all of our prayers together, it wouldn't amount to over two hours. How much are we praying for lost people? We say we do care about lost people. But we skip prayer meeting to watch things on TV. We skip prayer meeting 
play sports. We skip prayer meeting for all these other things. And we say, we say we're strong. We're men. We're standing against the devil. And the reality is, is he's lured you into a fallacy thinking that you can stand strong as a Christian only getting fed once a week. Many of us will make New Year's resolutions uh, this New Year's Eve and we'll say we all want to lose weight. But none of us will only eat one meal a a week in order to lose weight. We say we want to grow as a Christian, so we're going to come to church more faithfully. But what we mean is we're only going to come on Sunday mornings more faithfully until the summer. And you've been lured into thinking that there's all sorts of things that are better for your time. That golf is an okay excuse to miss church. The beach is an okay reason to miss church. Vacation. All of these things. And all of those things have their place. But with each thing that you do that takes away from following Christ, Satan is luring you in with one more lucrative thing after the other. And then in the end, you are a weak Christian and he has you exactly where he wants you. Useless for the kingdom of God. We as Christians are to be light in a dark world. We are supposed to be light pushing back darkness. The idea is that God is over here with a huge spotlight and he's pointing it in this direction and the darkness is fighting back and we're supposed to be light in a fight pushing back the darkness and we all have our own individual lamp and we're supposed to be locked arms, everyone watching over their own lamp, pushing back the darkness. What are we actually doing? Everybody's got their own lamp. Some people are like, oh yeah, we're not engaged. Most of the church is not engaged in fighting back darkness. We, us, are being deceived on a regular basis that the things that we call important are important. And the reality is is that most of them are not. We are so temporary focused and so non-eternally focused that we're sometimes we are absolutely useless for God's kingdom. Because we've got all of these lights that are supposed to be together, all of these candles that are supposed to be brought together, and we're supposed to shine bright, but people take their candles and they go walking off, and they go doing their other thing. And so the church goes to do something big, and you've got a couple people holding half-flickering candles, and we can't do anything of purpose. And we're supposed to all be together fighting darkness, but the schemes of the devil have got us. And the best scheme... When you're being taken is one where you don't realize you're being taken. Take all these Ponzi schemes. You invest and you invest and you invest. Oh, everybody's losing money, but I'm making it. Everybody's losing money, but I'm making it. And then you find out that you've spent your life savings investing in a scheme. And the bottom drops out and you've got nothing. That's what Christians are doing. Christians are actively investing their time into worthless Things, not things that are important. The things that we talk about, the things that we complain about are all ridiculous in light of eternity. And so he says, stand against the schemes of the devil. There's a book here. It's a really odd book. A guy named C.S. Lewis, one of the best writers of our time. He died in the 1960s. He was born late 1800s, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. I talked about this book on Wednesday night also. Wednesday nights, guys, are not a waste of time. I don't like my time to be wasted. I don't waste yours. 
But here we go. This guy, C.S. Lewis, said this was the hardest book that he had ever written. He's the same guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He's the same guy that wrote a book called Mere Christianity. All sorts of things that you're familiar with, he wrote. And he takes the position, or he takes, he writes from a demon's perspective. He writes from a perspective that he is a demon in the upper echelon ranks of demonhood. And he's writing to his nephew, who's a younger, up-and-coming demon. And he talks about how to, this younger demon's job is to coerce and to scheme a way to keep the young man who he's responsible for away from the faith. And so listen to some of the things that he says. Now, this is going to be really weird for you guys, for some of you guys. He says, this is the the demon, the oldest, the, the elder demon to the younger one, says there's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. And in this book, he calls God and Christ the enemy. It says he, God, wants men to be concerned with what they will do. Our business as demons is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. So he says one of... One of the roles or one of the ways that the the evil one, Satan, tries to keep you from doing what you're supposed to do is he says that God has given specific commands and he wants people to do them. The enemy's tactic is to get people to think about, well, what will happen to me if I do it? And that doesn't matter. You were told to do it. He's not concerned about what will happen to you if you do it. He's going to take care of that. But you have been told a lie that if you do certain things, certain things will happen. And the truth is, is that we as Christians need to get busy doing this, the things that God tells us to do. Let me tell you something. I'm going to spill the beans a little bit, and I don't want to falsely accuse anybody of anything. But I'm going to play the role of a prophet, and I'm going to tell you some things that are going to be said, because I've seen it a million times. Our church is going to sponsor a soup kitchen, and the Saturday before Christmas, we're going to feed the down-and-out people in our community. We're going to invite them into our fellowship hall, we're going to provide them with a good meal, and all sorts of other really neat things are going to happen. It's going to be a way that we can serve the community. These are some of the things that people may say. We don't know who's going to come in. We don't care. I don't care who comes in. I don't care if they're ripping us off. I don't care if they're taking advantage of us. I want to serve anyone who is one of the least of these who may not have a meal. But they'll take advantage of us. Maybe one or two will. Maybe five or six will. But I'm going to do what Christ told me to do. Reaching out to the least of these. Some people may say, well, I go shopping the day before Christmas or the Saturday before Christmas. Listen, Christmas isn't about you. Your life isn't about you. Your life is about serving Christ. And so some of you, you may not come because you're going to be busy shopping for you or your family, which is, has its place. I'm going to be shopping for my family at some point. But some of you are going to use it as an excuse not to do good things for people who don't have anything. And in your mind, you're going to justify that that's a good reason why you shouldn't help out. And all along, Satan is pulling you along, saying Christmas is all about you. The day before, the Saturday before Christmas, that's about you. That's about you and your family. Where the truth is, is maybe, maybe your family would be better off if you donated one turkey and you bought them one less present. And then you got your butt involved in helping with the soup kitchen and you served arm in arm with your child. That would be a good idea. But that's the Saturday before Christmas. No time to plan an event to serve the community. Do Christians say, oh, yeah, that's the perfect time to do it. 
Anytime that we grab arms and we serve somebody, people are always going to say something about the time. And the truth is there's never an easy time to do it. We just have to do it and not worry about the consequences. But all along, the devil is scheming. And he's telling you all sorts of lies. And he's filling your mind with all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't be doing godly things. All right, let's keep going. We could talk forever about the schemes of the devil. He says in verse 12, Ephesians 6, verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so whenever you come up with any sort of battle, whenever there's a, a, a battle to be had in the world or whether there's a battle to be had in the church, your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is never who you think your enemy is. Many of times who your perceived enemy is, is being coerced by the evil one to do certain things sometimes. And so if you look at all the problems that our nation has, it's not just individual people that are the problem. It's the evil one trying to take the nation as a whole. And he's using people to do it. And so the people that are making possibly bad decisions are not the enemy, but the person behind the people are the enemy. Following me? So the reality is, is that if you could take, if you could take this dimension, this world that we live in, everything that you've ever seen, and you could peel the corner of it back and you could peek, you would see that there are wars raging all around you for people's souls. There is, the, there is a battle between light and darkness going on, between angels that are good and angels that are bad, and they are constantly fighting for you and me. And there's a war going on. And we, as Christians, are asleep. Do you know where most of the casualties in a war come from? The answer is complacency. Complacency is what kills most of our service people. You're in training and you, you're not paying good attention to what you're doing. Next thing you know, people are dead. Now, that's not a blanket statement, okay? You're in a, in a wartime environment. You're not paying attention to what's going on and you flip a vehicle. It's not the enemy that does it. It's we that did it because we're complacent. I was in a convoy where people died in the army. Why did it die? Because a vehicle rolled over. Was the enemy attacking us? No. Guy falls asleep. Big problem. People are now dead. Multiple people are now dead. We're in a church where people are asleep. Some of you physically right this second. And some of you, spiritually speaking, are dead asleep and you're not engaged in the fight. And Satan will take you and he'll take me and he'll take this church if you don't stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you don't get serious about it, he will take you. It's not. Listen, you've been sold a bunch of junk about once saved, always saved. You better fight this race to the end or you're lost. You guys are half asleep right now. Some of you are thinking, but some of you are sitting back on these cushions thinking that you're okay. And the reality is, is that Billy Graham says over half of every given church is lost. Some of you want to nod your heads at me. And I appreciate some of your head nods. But you got to think about this because the devil wants to scheme and he wants you to go to lunch thinking, boy, that preacher's crazy. And the reality is, is if you don't take this serious, you are a deceived individual and the Bible calls you foolish. And that's not an insult. That's just a fact. I know we're running behind and that'll be a problem for some of you guys. But we got to cover one more thing. 
Go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel was a man's man. You want a hero for your sons and daughters? Daniel. Daniel took a stand when other people weren't taking a stand. He had three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His three buddies stood for Christ when other people wouldn't. And where did they go? They went into a furnace. And Christ saved them out of the furnace. They didn't worry about what would happen to them if they took a stand. They just took a stand and they let God deal with the rest. And God saw fit to save them. Daniel also takes a stand. He didn't worry about what would happen to him. He takes a stand. What happens to Daniel? They throw him into a lion's den. There are multiple times, and I'm skipping a lot. There are multiple times in Daniel's life where Daniel had to stand strong. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the all of the known world. There's a passage in here that says, King Nebuchadnezzar killed who he wanted to kill and he saved who he wanted to save. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, has a dream, and he wants somebody to interpret it to him. And so who do they call? They get rid of all the other people because they're a bunch of liars and they call Daniel. And Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you had a dream. You dreamed of a big tree that had all sorts of branches. He said, you're the tree. This is Daniel. Daniel's here. The king is here. The king says, what does my dream mean? He says, king, you're the tree. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, what now? He says, then you heard a voice come from heaven and tell an angel to cut the tree down. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the tree and God is going to cut you down. Because you didn't humble yourself, God is going to kill you. Excuse me, God's not going to kill you. God's going to take your kingdom from you. He's going to give it to someone else. And then you're going to go about like a wild animal. You're going to graze like a beast of the field until you humble yourself and realize how great God is. That's in Daniel chapter 5 or 6. And so what does the king do? The king kills who he wants to kill. But what does he do to Daniel? He exalts him. Do you know how hard it is to stand in front of a man who could take your life at any given notice and not pay any consequence for it and say, you are a man who hasn't humbled himself before God. And as a result of it, you're going to eat grass in the field like an ox. Do you think that gets a lot of do you make a lot of friends that way? No. Then again, another guy's king in Babylon. And he comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, what does this mean? You guys remember the handwriting on the wall? None of, nobody can read the handwriting. They call in Daniel, and this is what Daniel says. I'm going to just skip right to it. He says, and he interprets it, Daniel does. He says, now this is the inscription that was written out. This is the interpretation of the message. I'm in Daniel chapter 5, verse 25. This is the inscription that was written out. This is the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. How would you like to be a man and have to stand in front of the king and tell him God has numbered your kingdom and your time is up? You don't know anything about kings of the known world because we live in a place where we divvy out areas that belong to certain people. But in this day, this guy Belshazzar or Belshazzar was king of the known world. Everywhere that they knew about, he occupied. He didn't answer to the UN. He didn't answer to anybody. In that day, he didn't even answer to his wife because women weren't valued as much as they were today. And so this guy had it really easy where he didn't have any sort of accountability whatsoever. He could take anybody's life at any notice. And Daniel stands before him and says, your life, your kingdom is over. He says, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck. 
and issued a proclamation concerning concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And then listen to what happened that same night. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And so Daniel stands in front of the guy and he says, your kingdom is over. That's what the writing says. And they exalt David, Daniel. Now listen to what happens later on in Daniel's life. I tell you all of that to tell you that Daniel is no sissy. Daniel has stood in front of the king and said, you are found deficient. And listen to this. This is Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. That's a different name than the king, but being from the south, I can't pronounce it. So he says, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were complete. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like burl, and his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. Listen, Daniel was a man's man, and men's men don't run around with a bunch of sissies. And all these men ran out of fear, and Daniel standing there alone. What we're getting at here is something that pertains to Ephesians, but what Daniel saw scared him what daniel's friends didn't see but they knew was there scared them to death also and they ran away and he says verse 8 so i was alone and saw this great vision yet no strength was left in me for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor and i retained no strength but i heard the sound of his words and as soon as i heard the sound of his words i fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground Then, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Daniel stood before the king and said, your time is up. You're dying today. And now he's just seen this vision and he's trembling in fear. So whatever this is, has got to be more intimidating than the king of the known world who can put Daniel to death and will pay no consequence for it. He said, then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. So he says, get up, boy. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Listen to this. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So what does all this mean? Daniel sees an angel, and he's petrified. Angels don't look like your wife's precious moments figurines. Angels don't look like the junk that Hallmark puts on cards. 
they have tricked you because all of your theology comes from movies and Hallmark cards. And when you think angel, you think some little cute girl. And that's a lie. Angels are, are objects that God has created to worship him. And every time a human being sees him, he's scared out of his mind and he bows down petrified. And the angel always has to say, get up, don't be afraid. I've never been walking through the, the aisle on Mother's Day, seen an angel on a card and hit my knees in fear. It's just the truth. But people think Christianity is sissy stuff. And you're wrong. Listen to this. It says that that angel was dispatched at the first day of Daniel's prayer. And it took that angel 21 days to get to Daniel because the prince of Persia, a bad angel or possibly Satan, was, was keeping him from getting to Daniel. Follow me? There is spiritual warfare going on all around you. Meanwhile, you're allowing yourselves to be rocked to sleep by lullabies. And there's a war raging around you. And angels are fighting in this war. And many a times we're asleep. We don't even show up to stuff when we should be fighting. And when we pray, we pray ridiculous stuff. We don't even know what to pray. But there's a war going on around us. And we're not involved as Christians. And we should be. So it's high time that we wake up to the schemes of the devil. Then listen to this. He said, this is over in verse 20. Then he said, this is the angel. Do you understand why I came to you? But I, and he came to Daniel to strengthen him. Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. And so the angel comes, he strengthens Daniel, and then the angel leaves. Why? Because the angel is leaving to fight against the prince of Persia. And so these angels are involved in some sort of spiritual combat. And you and I are supposed to be involved in some sort of spiritual combat also. But how many of you guys would, would define our church as a place where spiritual warfare takes place? No. You don't. You want to know how I view the church? Not our church specifically. But this is what I think would be ideal for the church. You come to church and I preach something out of God's word that encourages you. I preach something that possibly convicts you. Something that gets you through. A word from the Lord so that you can be strengthened and you can leave these doors and you can go out and you can get into the fight. And then on Wednesday when you come, we grab arms and we pray together so that you can be strengthened so that you can continue getting through your week. But most of you don't need to come to church on Wednesday because you're not doing anything for Christ during the week. You don't need to be strengthened. So once a week is good for you. I would only have to fill my car up once a month if I left it in the driveway. This church should be just like a military safe house where we as Christians are out in the world fighting. And we're so exhausted from fighting and we're so exhausted from trying to win our friends and our neighbors to Christ that we come here and it can be a place where you can sit back. And you can breathe and we can pray for you and we can encourage one another. But sadly, we're not like that. Sadly, church is a place where you have to coerce people to come. You have to sing the songs that they want you to sing. You have to dress the way that they want you to dress. All in an effort to get people to come and to be a part of what God's doing. Pretty sad, huh? All the while, we're being lulled to sleep by the evil one. So next week... 
We'll spend some time talking about how you and I can put on the full armor of God. But as we go about the rest of our weeks this week, I want you to give a lot of thought to the things that you may think are enjoyable, realistically are probably pulling you away from better things that you could be doing for Christ. And so this is a good week for you just to reflect on your life and to the things that are in your life and reflect on the lies that you've been told. And spend some time, for heaven's sakes, in this book. And then take it with you when you go places. Take it with you when you come to church. When you go to work, take it with you. Because this, you'll find, is the only weapon that you have. And if you don't know it, it's like a private going out to a war and not understanding his M16. You would call him foolish. Well, the Christian who doesn't, isn't armed, isn't dangerous. The the most laughable thing is an undangerous warrior. Everybody laughs at him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you today, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would open our eyes to the things that you would have us to do first and foremost. Lord, I pray that you would keep us away from the schemes of the evil one. Lord, I pray for our church that you would help us to know not just not just think, but I pray that you would help us to know that we are not at war against each other, that we are at war against the evil one. I pray that we as a church, we as a body of believers, would be light, pushing darkness. Lord, I pray that we would never grow tired of locking arms and fighting for the cause of the gospel. Lord, I pray that, that we would weep over sin. I pray that we would weep over our lost friends and family. God, I pray that it would become a very real reality to us that if they perish apart from you, they will inherit a lake of fire. And God, I pray that that would keep us awake at night as a church. I pray that we would lose sleep. And God, I pray that we would actively get involved and engaged in ministries of the church and things that you would have us to do. And so, God, please wake us up out of our slumber. Please keep us from being rocked to sleep by our culture. And, Lord, help us to, uh, to engage where necessary. And, Lord, to chase after you as we've never chased after anything before. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would stand while we sing our hymn of invitation. If, uh, if you want to pray down front. We don't have a formal altar, but you're welcome to pray. I know you haven't seen anybody do it down front in a long time, but you're welcome to come and pray. You don't always have to pray with me. You're welcome for me to pray with you also. Uh, You're also, if you don't know Christ, if you feel like you have been being deceived during your life and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then now would be a good time for me to share him with you. Uh, Also, if for some reason you want to join fellowship with us uh, after this sermon, you are the type of person that I'm looking to recruit. And so you come down and join fellowship uh, with our church as well if, if God is so leading you. So let's stand, and Jonathan, if you'll lead us. Hey, well, thank you guys for coming again. It was great to see all you guys. Uh, don't forget about the announcements that are in the bulletin and all of the things that we've got coming up. Uh, I've, I've been uh, really encouraged by a lot of things I've heard uh, in the community about uh, a lot of folks from our church. And so God is uh, doing something amongst us and with us. And so be encouraged. It's not all bad news. We're doing, uh, we're doing a lot of things right. And so I want to leave you with a word of encouragement also. Um, Brother Jack Williford, would you close us in prayer? Oh, Lord, we're so thankful that we come today and fellowship and worship and give these words to play. And let us all be true 
Bible. And was that for the men and women in our country? 